Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you like the show, you can support it by checking out our books in addition to those by our guests and guest hosts, or maybe you wouldn't mind reviewing the show on Apple Pods, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also stay up to date with what we're doing by finding us on Instagram or the app formerly known as Twitter, at AutofocusLit. And if you like the show to the point that you'd pay to represent it on a t-shirt, we have one now available for order in our online store at autofocuslit.com books. This is perhaps the best way to support us right now. All right, that's my advertisement. Here's the show. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. Our episode of The Lives of Writers today is hosted by Sarah Rausch. Sarah Rausch is the author of the book-length essay, XO, from us at Autofocus Books. She's also the author of the story collection, What Shines From It, from Alternating Current Press. Her book reviews and author interviews have been featured in the LA Review of Books, New City Lit, Lambda Literary, The Rumpus, This Very Podcast, and elsewhere. Coming up soon, you'll hear Sarah in conversation with Emerson Whitney. Emerson Whitney is the author of Daddy Boy, which came out this year from McSweeney's and also the book Heaven, which came out from McSweeney's in 2020, in addition to the poetry title Ghost Box, which came out in 2014 from Timeless Infinite Light. Emerson's work has appeared in the Paris Review, New York Magazine, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and elsewhere. All right, let's get to it. This is Sarah Rausch's conversation with Emerson Whitney. I am currently in Maine. I'm on Passamaquoddy and Penobscot um, territory here in Maine. And um, I do work, I teach at Goddard College. It's the, and in the bachelor's in creative writing program, which is a really phenomenal place to be. Um, and yeah, today I am actually similarly to you awaiting a tractor to be dropped off. I think it's <laughs> going to get dropped off like any minute. Very exciting. Um, but yeah, so my my best friend who lives with my wife and I is using the tractor to make this cool kind of path for himself, and yeah, that's kind of what we're doing is like is uh, being in the woods and also near the ocean, which is really my favorite place mm. to be. So yeah, oh, that's yeah. perfect, like perfect in between, right? Woods and ocean. Yeah. I feel very, very grateful to be here. We're on a we're on a land reparation project. So part of the work that we do is also to make sure that we provide cultural land use for um, any of the, particularly the Passamaquoddy, but um, any group that might want to use the land. But also, yeah, it's just a really, it's been a really intentional process of, of being here. And yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't really 
imagine a better scenario for myself, but also for my writing self. It's really ideal to sort of be slowly making alongside um, this kind of deep intentionality around place. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that sounds wonderful. So do you live there full time and then commute over yep. to Vermont for Goddard? Um, yeah, we, uh, Goddard is uh, the program I'm in and the whole Institute is low residency. Oh, so no I'm kidding. there okay. twice a year. Yeah. yeah. So I, I am there for two weeks, four weeks, technically twice a year. Um, and although I guess now I'm like, not sure exactly what the amount of weeks are we we shifted like many institutions um in the pandemic to being like i think we have one full virtual residency and one that has the in-person component for a few weeks which is basically camp goddard so yeah and i lived in la for 10 years and part of that i was at goddard and his commute is much better at yeah. <laughs> so yeah so yeah no plane yeah, no plane. It's nice. I get to bring like a toaster if I want or, you know, in the car. It's great. Yes. Or a dog. I often bring a dog. <laughs> oh, that me, sounds so. nice. Do you live on, yeah. so do you live on campus when you go stay for the residencies? Yeah, okay. we stay there for the most part. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely like camp sort of feeling um, where, yeah, people fly in from all over and we eat all together and there's all sorts of stuff going on all the time. There's lots of there's lots of um, drama, which is entertaining. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. I did my I did my MFA in a low residency program, so I have a, a little bit of nice. an, a little bit of an idea of what that is like. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun when you're in it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Do you find are the since it's a bachelor's um, program, are the students mm -hmm. on the younger side or do they kind of encompass it all is ages? Everybody. Okay. Yes. They encompass all ages for sure. We are a really unique program in the sense that it really is a school. Like I, I actually am an alum. Uh, my undergrad I did at Goddard. Um, it was my I keep wondering if I'm saying it wrong, but I think I'm I think I mean it is my seventh. I think it was my seventh undergrad program that I was in. <laughs> it might have been my sixth. I like could have added one. Like I don't remember exactly at the moment, but yeah, it was sixth or seventh. And um, and yeah, it, it it's a great place to go if you have life stuff that you want to keep doing and you need to fold it into um a, like a degree essentially, so that you can actually get the paper that you need to continue doing life stuff that you're probably already excelling at. But, you know, we, we basically, we end up being more like coaches, like that's sort of how I see myself. And um, yeah, we were, I, I'm working with folks of any, any age, any life experience. Um, mostly we actually also specialize in working with people who have educational trauma. So like, you know, and I, I think I'm saying both the capital T trauma and the little T trauma, meaning like, Folks are coming there because they just have experienced a level of, um, I guess I, I want to say rejection or discomfort or outright kind of abusiveness of 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 educational environments, mostly related to their levels of access, um, but yeah. also disability. And we're a great place to be if you're disabled and if you're queer and trans. So yeah, that's a lot of the folks I get to work with, which yeah. I'm grateful for. Oh, wonderful. So it's very inclusive. That sounds like a great, a great experience. I did 
I have a similar, my undergrad, I did four, four different colleges and ended up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ended up at the new school, which was like kind of a design for adult learning. Right. So it was like, could pick my own classes, design my own major. And that was like, that felt right after being kind of, I feel like traditional schools try to like fit you into a, you're supposed to fit. And if you don't, it's, it's very difficult. Totally. Yes. And it's really true. I actually wanted to go to the new school for undergrad. And I couldn't get in because my GPA was so low from a community college that I had gone to. Um, and, you know, it was so low because I always had life stuff happening and I was struggling. And, you know, I really I just am so grateful that there's like places like Goddard where they're like, you can go. <laughs> and I couldn't I, I truly couldn't be where I am at all if it weren't for that particular place like yeah it was my it was the last house on the block for me and it it worked out great oh awesome that's wonderful so when did you graduate and when did you graduate and when did you start teaching was there I graduated in 2011 and then I got an MFA uh at CalArts in LA and Valencia and then I got a PhD from the European Graduate School um and then I was back at Goddard I think in 2018, 2017, 2018. So it was a pretty uh, quick turnaround for the other (laughs) things, but I was actually at Goddard at the same time I was finishing a postdoc at USC, uh, University of Southern California. So I did did Goddard and other stuff for quite a while and now I'm there full time. Yeah. Okay. Very nice. Wow. It sounds like Goddard was like this kind of like ramp. It kind of set you on this great trajectory of more education into the, you know, into the future. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. And I was actually, when I was at Goddard, I was also uh, working as a reporter full time uh, at the New York Observer in New York. Nice. And the only reason I I went to get a degree was because Peter Kaplan, who was our editor at the time, um, we'd just been bought by Jared Kirshner, you know, who (laughs) now is, you know, now is Jared Kirshner. At the time, he was just like a (laughs) random guy dating Ivanka Trump. And now, you know, anyway, but he was, he was, it was a very tumultuous time. And um, Peter Kaplan spoke to me specifically and said, because you don't have a degree, you are going to be in big trouble when we fold. And, and he was right. I, I was in big trouble. And luckily I was, I was pursuing something so that I could kind of put a, put an, a rudder in the water. And, and yeah, so, yeah. so Goddard was really helpful for me at that time. Yeah. Wow. That's wonderful. It was like this perfect kind of pivot and direction and like really worked. Yeah. Big time. All right. So tell me a little bit about, um, I will, I read da- daddy boy and heaven. So I know at least the, the mediated <laughs> version awesome. of some of these questions, but tell me a little bit about mm. young Emerson. What was your childhood like? Um, especially in, re- in regards <laughs> to like reading and writing, what kind of reader and writer uh-huh. were you in those years? Well, you, you definitely know some of those answers, uh, in those books, because that really is the question that I seem to be answering a lot in writing, but absolutely as a, I, I, I am someone who is very focused from a young age. If you ask my grandma, she would tell you that I was writing ever since I could hold a pencil. And it's true. I was, I was particularly writing about them, which was funny to think about as well, that they were, <laughs> they're very used to autobiography from me because I was apparently following them around, just like writing about them yes. <laughs> when I was little and it's very much stayed and, I think about my mom a lot in the summer and how she really did do like 
summer reading time. Um, We didn't have a lot of like resources uh, when I was growing up. And so like, there wasn't like a lot of other stuff to do, especially when we were like in Dallas and it was very hot in the summer. And she would just like make sure that we like, you know, read books and would stop everything else in the house for reading time. And we'd go to the library and make that a really big deal. And she would make these like circles of colored paper and she'd do like a, sometimes it was a caterpillar or like some other design, but she would do like, she would write the name of the books I read on the colored piece of paper and then make like art about it all over the house. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just thought that was so exciting because I was like, look at how much I'm reading. Like, how cool is this? Um, And yeah, that I think, I think there, I was really, I, I really do feel like I, I guess I, I'm grateful for the nurturing of that practice that I think both my mom and my grandma really were present for. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds wonderful to have that, to have that memory and to have that kind of base, I guess, for building yeah. the rest of your life on that, that books and mm-hmm. reading were so important and that you were encouraged yeah. to be writing autobiography. I know a, a, one of the, one <laughs> yeah. of the questions we'll get to in a little while is like, how you kind of navigate writing about personal things, especially when it's family. Um, but yeah, that they were kind of encouraging and, and saying like participating in it and saying like, yeah, we want you to do this. Yes. <laughs> well, I think they just, I mean, the way they would describe it is they just got used to it. Mm. I don't think they would have chosen that. <laughs> to this day, my grandma's like, if you, why don't you write like a murder mystery, like in the fog and, lighthouse murder and i i mean i i always say i would if i could i would love to do that but i just don't that's not how my brain works really and so but they've just surrendered i think i think that's all it really is (laughs) i'm grateful that there's that there's a little bit of that so yeah yeah for sure okay so since you were writing from a young age and i think if i remember right you published a book of poetry a few years mm-hmm. back. So that would have been your first yeah. book. Um, mm-hmm. what, what kind of happened in, in between like young Emerson's life and then like publication of first book and then a few years elapsed before heaven. So what are those, what are those periods look like? Mm. What was happening for you? So, okay. So when I, I, it, I had like, you know, in some ways I was answering your question, um, you know, with the specific lens of like writing influences about childhood, but I also had like a, a gnarly childhood, you know, so in the like ACEs thing, like the ACEs test or whatever, do you know about that? Like the adverse childhood experiences yes. test. Yeah. Like it's just, I just, it's an, I, I just, I had all those things, you know, mm. I, I think I'm a nine on that. And like, I mean, I, I have a few other people in my life that are, are in the similar situation and we connect really deeply on that because yeah. there was just not a lot of safety or, um, or security or serenity or any of those things that one would probably need to, as an anchor for, for like feeling okay in one's body and in one's life. Um, and so I think when I was, I guess, um, finding myself, um, interacting with the world in the same ways that the family members of mine who were particularly harmful when I was growing up were, um, I had to make some really big changes and I did that, I think, before going to, uh, I did that before going to Goddard and before getting the job at the Observer. 
Um, and when I was able, like I got, I, I got sober in uh, 2006, I was 20 years old and um, I really spent a lot of time reckoning with what it meant to have a, have a really dangerous childhood. Um, and, and again, like dangerous, but plus like not really a lot of um, conscious support, I guess, like not a lot of places to put those feelings of, of um i had a therapist describe it once as like a baby in space like it was just mm. sort of like there's yeah. not like where's everyone um <laughs> kind of feeling yeah and you know and so like i think when i was in that position i was really able to um to like yeah i i was i, I felt uh really compelled to sort of turn toward like writing um and it took a while but i did i was a building manager and i like <laughs> tried to i tried to do things my in my family it was very privileged to work as as we joked from the uh neck down yeah. and not so much from the <laughs> neck up and yeah. so i was trying to work with my hands but i'm dip- disabled so like wasn't going very well and writing just was always there so um, I wrote that first book actually, uh, when I was at CalArts, um, and I got there through various, you know, uh, networks of encouragement with, with mentors and people just wanting me to keep going. So I made it to, to LA to do that. And, um, in, in the program I was in, I just started, um, like wanting to do kind of a documentary project based on my discomfort with being in LA, which had reminded me of growing up in Dallas and also growing up in Sacramento, which I, I had a really hard time when I was a kid in Sacramento. So, um, so yeah, I was, uh, <laughs> I was doing that kind of stuff and I wrote a little documentary piece about it. And at the, um, uh, Jack Kerouac School for Disembodied Poetics. Uh, we, I met a few folks that were, uh, were from Timeless Infinite Light, and they wanted to publish it, which was really cool. And they nice. did. And then between that and Heaven, I was still at uh, CalArts, and Maggie Nelson was there really, really encouraging me to kind of go for Heaven. Like, she mm. was really so supportive um and i just got to hang out with her in la on the book tour that i just did and you know she's still so encouraging and it's really just quite lovely you know she came to the reading and was asking me all these questions about how it was or was asking me sort of a bigger question that had more questions in it about how i sort of had gotten more comfortable with writing in this Mm -hmm. way and a lot of that did start with her encouragement just sort of to just go for that thing that's felt like really truly like um, I really felt as if I had to excavate some of the most difficult aspects of my, of my like thinking and ways of being. Yeah. And in doing that, I did kind of roll, roll the boulder away from the mouth of the cave in a sense. <laughs> like I feel as if, I feel as if in doing that project, I opened writing um, and a writing life but I couldn't do it until I had had done that aspect. You know, it's interesting. When I read both of your books, I, I thought like, there's a very interesting sense when I was reading your work that you're kind of giving the reader everything you have but never pushing yourself beyond what is like actually going to be, well, okay. It's probably painful, (laughs) 
but it, you know, it kind of sometimes pivots and it's like, okay, we're going to go over here now, but that never seems like forced or like it, do, it never feels out of place. It feels very just like part of the flow. And I like, almost like I'm in your head. I'm actually in your head when I'm reading your books, which is great. I love when that happens. So will you talk a little bit about like what the process looks like with kind of dealing with like trauma and pain and revealing things that are very difficult, but then also like keeping yourself maybe safe or at a place where you want to keep coming back to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, death, definitely um, that I, I so appreciate that you feel as if you're in my head because, because you are, I mean, I truly, I, I a lot of folks have talked about the direct address that I use mm-hmm. in, um, Daddy Boy, for example, um, uh, I guess I use it more in Daddy Boy. I assume yeah. I do it in both, but um, I kind of forget. But the but that the texture of that is really about. It's really truly the same. Um, it kind of has two sides, but it's the same voice that I've always had in, in, in my notebook. I write every morning. I always have. Um, as, as long as I can remember, I was journaling. And when I was a little kid and I was journaling, I would write like, dear you. Mm-hmm. And I would write to my best friend, which is writing itself. And so I've always, I've always, um, thought of writing itself as, as an audience in a way, um, cause we're hanging out and, yeah. and I love to hang out. Yeah. Um, the other thing that it's also too is to the reader because, mm. um, you know, there's nothing more intimate and incredible to me mm. that I have, that there is someone out there reading it. And it truly is like a message in a bottle, mm. um, to all of you. And in, 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 in talking to everyone directly, um, I'm, I'm trying to honor that dynamic, which I just think is so, so powerful. So I truly have, I've tried to let you in, in that way. Um, and I, in that practice, um, I'm not really holding anything back and I am just doing what I'm really, um, very comfortable showing you what my, what my mind does look like. I think writing is really just, is really like, I was told once I, I'm trying, I'm always trying to give credit to these things, but I don't remember where this one came from, but, um, but the, like writing is your best thinking, um, uh, 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 idea is truly the one I hang on, which is that I'm, uh, it's my thinking that I'm, that I'm able to share. And, and what does it mean to be thinking from my subject position? Um, I think is, is, I guess, uh, what we're talking about right now. Um, cause there is a writer, of course, back here with all different kinds of experiences. And, um, and I love autobiography for that, for, for being kind of this, this very, very intimate, um, collaborative shared experience. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. There's a, and of course now I'm sitting here with both books. I can't remember which book it is, but you quote Maggie Nelson as saying that autobiography is mediated reality. And that kind of made me think of that as you were just speaking, like you're mediating between the writer and the person and kind of making something Mm -hmm. New, some, something original out of yes. that. Um, That's true. So I'll, I'm going to give a little introduction to Daddy Boy, the book, before we t- we talk about it more specifically. Um, so plot wise, and I was like, as I was writing this up, I was like, 
the plot's important here, but the plot's like not the yeah. most important thing. Some books it really is. And this book it's, it's there and it's like creating this frame and structure and lending like texture and nuance to the story. But it's also kind of become, it becomes like this place where the rest of your concerns kind of rise out of. So the plot basically is a, a relationship, a long-term relationship that was a marriage, but the marriage yeah. seems like the marriage was at the kind of the end of the relationship, right? But it was longer. Um, the yes. relationship and marriage and so. <laughs> yeah, um, ends. And <laughs> in this kind of place of not knowing what to do with yourself, you decide you're going to go on a storm chaser tour and you leave LA and fly back to, um, Texas, which is where you spent part of your time growing up. Um, and then over the course of the book, where we're with you in the van chasing these tornadoes that really never materialized, which I loved. It seemed like very appropriate for the, for the whole yeah. book. Um, we're kind yes. of with you on this autobiographical journey into these atmospheric, geographical, intellectual, bodily, relational ideas and experiences that you're having and remembering. And there's a, a strong sense of maybe return in in the the journey, yeah. like you're going back to something that you hadn't reckoned with yet. Um, and all of this becomes this kind of gate for investigating and finding a new voice, a true voice, one of one of your true voices, because we can have many voices within us. Right. So in, in this sense of return, I'm curious about, I mean, since what we just talked about is, is that, you know, you're kind of putting yourself into into the book there's very it's mediated mm -hmm. but it's very you the sense of return like when we talk a little bit about um kind of the idea of coming back to a place you once lived people who helped raise you the memories that shaped your identity and especially your inner child that comes up a lot in this book and like reparenting oneself and like learning how to surrender to things um how do these things continue to like inform and shape the self in the book and then kind of outside of the book too like mm. yeah um wow i and you're right we could go a, a lot of ways with this and because self of course is is so mutable mm. um i feel as if i'm absolutely a constellation of many many factors um including like racialization, uh, you know, gender, sexuality, you know, we could disability, we could just go on and on yeah. and, um, about these constellations. But um, in this particular one or the lens of daddy boy, for sure, I was really trying to look at, um, you know, what it meant to be kind of connected to this, in some ways, adoption, but also um, a, a strangely configured family and what I wanted to do in terms of growing into being in relationship to these folks, like, do I want to be this, like an agent of like my day and the way that they are? Because what I had been in for a long time is a daddy boy relationship. So mm. what that meant for me was that I was like, not agenting specifically, which at the time felt amazing. It was an amazing experience to just be sort of, um, yeah, to know my spot, like to know my place. And as someone that 
is coming to terms with like, um, you know, how, how neurodivergent, I guess I am and how much structure I really appreciate in terms of like, I just want to know what the rules are. Like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get what y'all are doing over there. And, you know, I was diagnosed with like, uh, you know, I was put in special ed when I was 11 and I never really knew, like they'd, they'd given me all these diagnoses, including like, um, you know, spectrum stuff and, um, it was because I failed the Weschler intelligence scale for children. Um, and I was not intelligent enough to not be, uh, sex, you know, um, uh, I almost thought of, thought the, of the word sequestered, but that's not really what it was. But I was, I was removed in some mm. ways from, from not being, um, uh, cordoned off as someone who would fail a test like that. Um, and so in, in doing so, I just never knew though, was it the fact that like I was really struggling at the time with, with, you know, being safe, like, was that why I would fail it or whatever? So I never really believed in any of that. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, my mom recently passed away. Uh, she died in August. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, and, uh, in her, in relationship to her passing, I've really tried to look at like what in the world, um, we are both, or we're both living through. And one of those things for sure is being, uh, being just not, not neurotypical at all and, and probably autistic and definitely, um, you know, just definitely all, all a bunch of stuff. Um, but in, in, in looking at that, I just really, in this book specifically, I was reckoning with the fact that like, I just wanted someone to show me how I was supposed to engage. Um, and when I cast that off, which was terrifying, I, I didn't necessarily know who to look at as, as, as what kind of agent I wanted to be. And when I looked at my, my stepdad, my ex-stepdad, my adoptive dad, whatever we want to give him as a marker, Hank, um, I, I didn't necessarily, I, he's, he was, he's been my closest family member in the sense that he's someone I would call to talk about life. Um, as much as I love my grandparents, we don't have that same kind of dynamic. And yeah, anyway, so, uh, I was like, is this what I want to be? Is this, is this how I want to enact that kind of day to day agenting? And I was, I was really in this exploration of looking at his, at how misogyny had, had worked through his mm-hmm. life and how it worked through our relationship. And, um, yeah, I, I wanted to go and, and explore that. Hmm. Yeah. There's an interesting line early in Daddy Boy where he picks you up at the airport, I think when you're mm-hmm. flying in and takes you home. And I, one of your step, step brothers is there too. And he, Hank says, so you're a man now, eh? You take care mm-hmm. of yourself. And then a few paragraphs down, you say, I don't even know what that means. And yeah. there's like such ambiguity there. And like, it's like the perfect kind of place to enter into that, maybe that question of like, what is this? What does it mean? Do I want to take part of it? If I do want to take part of it, how do I take part of it? And then yes. the rest of Daddy Boy feels a lot like a lot like an exploration of that among other things too. Yes, like, for sure. you know, um, I think that like, I often, I'm kind of a, 
obsessed with book structures. And so I was trying to categorize daddy boy, give it a structure. And I was like, is it a tornado? It kind of like moves around and (laughs) sucks things up and like moves them and puts them down in a different configuration in a different place. I Um, love that. Yeah. It seemed to, to work really like it work really well. And I think it's probably the first book I've ever read that I would say its structure was a tornado. So. (laughs) Okay. That's well, I'm, I'm so excited. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, and the weather is very important uh, kind of throughout, especially like you're on this storm chasing tour with a group of people that you've never met. Everyone's strangers. Um, the two guides have their very distinct personalities. The people in the van all have distinct personalities that you kind of bring up through the conversations and stuff. Um, but it's a somewhat kind of anticlimactic tour <laughs> because they're, <laughs> they're you know, there's a lot of time driving. There's so much driving. And like at the end, there's one, is it called an up, up shoot, up funnel? Is uh, um, uh, up draft or up I draft. guess. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And it's like, this is going to have to do, there's a sense of like, well, this is what we've been chasing and this is going to have to do. Um, but it seems also that weather had been kind of a guiding and I get, well, maybe a guiding force. I'll I'll stick with that. Where mm-hmm. throughout even your your early adulthood, formative kind of years, um, you talked a little bit in the book about um, using ch- early chat rooms to connect with other storm chasers. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I think you, and, and when you were a teenager, and so there's like there is mm-hmm. there's a sense of return there, that sense of connection. But um, will you talk a little bit about the difference from those early storm chasing experiences and the the later one that you talk more fully about in Daddy Boy? Yeah, I mean, early their early experiences were just way more. Um, they were way more fun in the sense that like I could, I could kind of go and get in danger with it. And mm. what I didn't know when I was signing up for the tour was that it was actually like, there are tours, I guess, like that maybe are more peril. Like there's peril, there is an element of peril that is enticing. Um, we, I, I think at least a lot of the people I've been around lately have been transfixed by the concept of, um, you know, uh, adventure tourism for billionaires. This is not exactly that. It definitely is adventure tourism though. Um, and, uh, my tour was filled with folks from Essex, England who had paid $4,000 to ride around in a van (laughs) all summer long. And it was just fascinating to experience through them, um, their lens on what it meant to just kind of like drive through, the planes uh they loved it and uh for me i i'm i was really struggling with how how much i felt like a kid i felt like a kid in the van i couldn't control it i i i couldn't make it go into the storm i couldn't choose necessarily where it went and there were so many times that i tried to influence where it went and i noticed myself doing that and the writing version of me was like that's so that's so perfect because um you know i'm in this practice of trying to understand like what it means to actually listen to my own body um and part of the part of the experience of childhood for me was being denied a lot of access to those signals that come from a body like even like the i have to pee one you know i have to pee Mm -hmm. but you know in my life uh there was no real stopping for that i even i noticed to this day i i do that to myself all the time so i'll be like 
busy doing something and I will just not pee. And I'll be like, I am now so suddenly I have to pee so bad. And, and, and <laughs> I like, it's just, it's just still such an ingrained part of how I interact with the world that I, I suppress those signals. And I live with, yeah. like I was saying, my friend here who he listens to those. I see him. We have a very busy few days and with this project he's working on. And like, I see him like he was just having a nice breakfast a minute, you know, I saw him having breakfast and that is just not who I am when I have something stressful happening. I, I suppress all those needs and I just like crush it or try to, mm. and, and I end up feeling not very good. <laughs> so a lot of this was about reckoning with those, those very specific experiences of feeling like a kid in a van, not having any, you know, that feeling of like, when did we get there? And um, yeah, noticing in some ways that when I was younger and doing similar things that I didn't, I, I was feeling more of, uh, I felt more as if I had some agency then. Um, and I was kind of reckoning the whole time with what now I, I wanted to come into terms with. Um, but weather for sure has always been a big part of my life. And, um, I still get so excited. There was like a thunder roll this morning and I was still, I just get, I get, I, I mean, it's really the only thing that quiets so much of my, my thinking mind. I'm not somebody that gets lost in TV. I just can't do it. I wish I could. Um, my wife listens to lots of podcasts and she can really like sink into it. I just don't, I, I, it doesn't work to kind of quiet my thinking. Um, but what does is a good old, is a good storm. So. <laughs> Of bodies, <laughs> uh, while while we're on the body topic, um, one of the things that comes up is pain and yes. the pain of of living with. Um, I I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right. Is it Eller Stan? Yeah, Eller Stanlos. <laughs> it's a guy's name. It's some. It's okay. like the discoverers of its name, and so some people say Eller, some people say Eller. I don't know, but but yes, I have that. <laughs> Yeah. So there's a sense of like that living with kind of chronic pain um, and then coming out of this long-term relationship that was a, like a, a dom sub, dominant submission, yep. submissive <laughs> relationship mm -hmm. where um, I think your ex says like pain is part of it. Pain is like part of why that like a submissive will seek that, that relationship. Um, and then like kind of navigating out of that dynamic in that agency that you were talking about, like how does pain kind of play into things like over the course of establishing agency and then kind of like moving more towards that, bringing that, that balance mm -hmm. back together? Yeah. I mean, I think um, when that part in the book, I'm, I'm sort of naming, like in some ways there's like two things that happen or were happening in that particular relationship I was in. So there was like dominance and submission which is, you know, some, you know, the, the acronym BDSM is sort of mm -hmm. like broken up like this. So there's like the dominance and submission and there's like the sadism and the masochism. I laugh because <laughs> it seems like such a binary, of course, always, but, um, and it's like, it's always funny to talk about this in literary environments because it feels like something that, you know, I've been asked on this tour, like why there's not more writing like about kink in, in like literature or whatever. And I, I think there actually quite, there is quite a bit, um, 
but but yeah I still it, it makes me smile to be talking about it in this context <laughs> a little bit um because in so many ways that that community uh was just a huge part of how I have grown up you know I'm I'm still so I think I one of my concerns with this book was that it would it would seem as if I was saying something was inherently harmful in any of these kinds of um you know practices or ways of being and I couldn't I couldn't be saying more of the opposite. Like I, I, I just found like kink to be such a safe place for me and a place for me to be um, an explorer of all of these things. And definitely it's like sort of how I came up in a sense. Like I definitely grew up in those environments. And at the same time, of course, in any, in any space, there can be harmful people and harmful ideas. Um, so to be, you know, mindful of that, in in a way is is what I was engaging with in this book but also yeah just like I think I think as someone who lives with pain um and was born with pain essentially um so what even is pain we could go on and on that too (laughs) um (laughs) and like what is being born I don't know um but I for sure grew up with pain and so to have it kind of coalesced in one sort of sensory experience through S&M, through kink, was really mm-hmm. powerful. It was like, it would draw all my attention to that one spot if I was engaging in a pain practice. And I could see it almost like with like with a with an attentiveness that felt new because otherwise my pain experience was so flattened, it was everything. So it was like kind of bring it together and I could kind of get my hands around it and then it could fall back into that everything. And that was so helpful. Um, And then what I started to find out was that I wanted to be able to do that, that drawing of my attention. I didn't want it to have to come through an experience of rapture that someone else was bringing into me. I wanted Mm. to be able to, to bring it into me. And it was very parallel with watching these people pay to drive toward tornadoes. I mean, it was just so Mm. similar that I couldn't, I couldn't not um, make them have a conversation, but for sure. um, Yeah. I, 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 I'm still reckoning with all that that means, but I think it has a lot to do with what I'm saying with about listening to those signals. And of course I'm talking about the complexity of like, of like all the things we're naming, which is like trauma and, um, you know, and queerness and transness and all that stuff. Um, and when I have that as, uh, as the way I'm organizing my experience of pain, um, I can't ever tell what is the thing that's kind of depressing those signals. And I don't even need to know. I just know that at this point, um, I'm kind of coming to terms with what it means to tr- to just really be living in a, a disabled life, you know, and to, to, to acknowledge disability in some ways is very political and to say, yeah, I'm, I'm disabled as hell. And it's, it's totally great. And it's hard mm-hmm. and it's totally, you know, ableism is what's hard. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I wasn't there. I, I truly wasn't there yet. And I was still trying to kind of get my, um, yeah, to, to come to terms with pain um, through the lens of, of ableism. I wasn't really trying mm. to come to terms with pain, um, in the, in relationship to what I actually needed. And sort of that's, that's sort of the transition that happens throughout that book. And it doesn't even happen in that book. I don't think exactly, but it's what's <laughs> happening now. So yeah, that's yeah. the next project really. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, oh, good. Interesting. Um, So the idea of like being able to concentrate your energy on the pain and like hold it and really look at it versus having it be kind of diffuse. Um, it sounds like that's an ongoing process, something you, you, you learned, but continue to learn as you absolutely move forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess, yeah, it's one of those things. It's like, a, I guess for lack of a better term, it's a practice, right? You just yes. keep doing it every, <laughs> every single yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. There's a, a, a very real sense, I think in this, as opposed to an unreal, what's what is real? I was just reading about the Matrix and that que- the movie and the, that <laughs> yeah. question, what is real? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a very real sense in this book of growing up, like kind of um, in in the leaving of this BDSM relationship and kind of declaring that you want to figure out like what is it, what is it to have agency? What is it to to want to do things on my own terms? That's a kind of growing up out of you had to kind of grow into the role that you were in and then you had to grow out of it mm-hmm. and then kind of continue to grow going forward um so do you ever have you been on any more storm chasing tours since this one or was this <laughs> no i don't know that i'll ever do that again i mean i truly like it i'm so not good at following <laughs> like i was so not excited <laughs> to just be following their meteorology path like i wanted to drive so because the the thing about the tours is that they a lot of folks are there to take good pictures which makes sense i didn't even think of that but of course people are there to like get yeah. this sight of a tornado and you can't do that if you're actually being hit by the storm that doesn't work because you're <laughs> in the rain and you can't yes. see anything so i I was more invested in the idea of getting hit by it. So no, I don't think I'll ever do that again. But, you know, we did truly have a blast, like in a lot of ways. It was a community that I didn't expect to be so comfortable in. And a lot Mm. of, you know, as you're hearing me sort of weave neurodivergence throughout our chat right now, um, I was definitely also in that moment realizing that I was kind of like, I was letting myself have this, this like very, very earnest and childlike experience mm. of a special interest and I was surrounded by people who had that spe- that same special interest and that felt so fun um and yeah I really expected it to be like white dudes in like those little like I like the same folks that like wear those like flying squirrel suits and like jump off of mountains <laughs> like I truly thought it was like that kind of person and it was I keep saying that because I just that's really what I that's literally the exact image <laughs> that I had in my mind um, but it was not that at all. It was like, you know, a group of folks, like I'm saying from Essex, like there are black folks, brown folks. Um, and it was like, uh, and the first, like, it was just like the people that were there were like also slightly queer. Like, it's just, it was like very, um, it was very surprising. The, the person who, um, was in charge of it had, uh, a clip art image of a tornado on a rainbow flag. And I didn't notice that until we kind of went into it more. So I was, I would just, I just kind of happened to find uh, a spot that was going to be a bit nurturing of what it meant to be traversing these spaces in the U S and to actually kind of give a new kind of uh, quilt of what is possible in terms of like 
who who do we want to be when we're um, in interrelated? And I think this idea of growing up has this texture of like independence. There's this belief that you know I have to. I wanted to be an agent, which means that I want to be independent. You know, um, there I'm in a place where there's a lot of eagles, and I think a lot about like the symbology of the bald. Ooh. They're bald eagles. And I think a lot yeah. about the symbology of that. that they're like alone, and that's like great um but for sure i've been educated very well by disability communities that um that you know it's about interdependence so we actually like truly truly need each other um so so yeah i think that i i got all that out of this this little experience (laughs) in the van but would i want to get in the van again and do that no 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 (laughs) i do not want to do that again at all right now yeah i would rather drive yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Very good. Maybe that's so. next, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could be. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, and that's actually a good segue of what are you working on right now? What what project can we expect next? So yeah, I'm working on um, a book about uh, you know uh, reckoning with this exact subject of um, mm. of testing essentially um, and special ed and also. Um, disability. Um, my it, the the framework of the book it really changed dramatically uh, when my mom died. So um, she, you know, trigger warning for you and all, but she killed herself. Um, mm-hmm. And it was um, the most incredible, humbling, troubling, um, heartbreaking experience I think I'll ever mm-hmm. ever go through. Um, we live 15 minutes away from each other. And had I had a lot of ideas about what a future could look like mm. in, as neighbors and in relationship. Um, yeah. And I just never expected it to. I mean, I, you know, I did and I did. And I think I always was afraid mm. something really horrible was going to happen to my mom. And it did. Mm. Um, yeah. But in reckoning with her death, I was going through all of her papers. It was my, I was charged with going through everything. And she had a lot of papers of diagnosis, like just, just reams of diagnostic paperwork from over the years. And um I was going through it and I found like ones with like autism, question mark, question mark, and like other stuff. And then I got to a bunch and, you know, I realized I was, she saved mine. So not only was Mm. I in the same Tupper, you know, I was, I was just literally looking at us through these diagnostic papers um, and in the same Tupperware where we looked just near, near identical. Um, uh, And so yeah, my charge for the last year, she passed away like a year ago in a month. Um, and I, I've just spent the last year um, really reckoning with what she didn't get to have. And it really breaks my heart mm. that I think, you know, these headphones I'm wearing are like these fancy ones that, I mean, I don't know, they're fancy to me, but they're like the noise canceling kind that like understand what's the sounds around you. Like, I don't even know what's going on, but it, like <laughs> we tried it at the store and I was like, please take my money. Like it had silenced the buzzing (laughs) and it's just incredible. I wear them all the time. I'm fully that person and I love it. And um, I wear them on silent. There's nothing in them most of the time. And the pleasure I have from, from quieting the, my Mm. environment is just so supreme. And I spend every single day right now thinking about how I wish my mom could have had any access Mm. to this. She didn't get to have it. 
And, you know, I, I also started using a wheelchair this year because I, she worked very, very hard as a housekeeper for this really very, very, very wealthy family. And she just never got to rest and she never Mm. got to take a break and she never got to be disabled. Um, And so I, I really do want to be here. Um, Mm. I feel very lucky to be here and I know that the only way I can continue to be here is if I reckon with some of these things. And Mm. that means right now, that means wheeling around in the evenings when my feet don't work anymore. And it means, you know, wearing these headphones and going to the store when it has like quiet sensory hours, which I really love when certain stores have that. Like, so, so I'm, I'm working through all that in this new book. Yeah. So, Ooh, so yeah. The sound, this sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm looking forward to it for sure. Well, thank I, you. I love hearing that you're honoring yourself and in a way honoring your mom too, and being able to kind of access that lineage and it feels yeah. kind of healing humbling. Yeah. It's been a long, it's been a long time coming in my family. I don't think any, all of us have the same stuff and none of us got to, none of us got to actually enact the portion of life that is one that involves some kind of pleasure and ease. So yeah. 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 What a privilege. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Trying. (laughs) All right, that was Sarah Roush's conversation with Emerson Whitney. You can get a copy of Daddy Boy and or Heaven, both from McSweeney's, if you'd like to check those out wherever you buy books. And if you're interested in checking out Sarah Roush's book, XO, along with it, you can do that over at autofocuslit.com books. And that's where you can check out our whole catalog in addition to the new t-shirt for this podcast, which if you buy is a wonderful way to support the podcast and press. And if you want to do some more listening today and you're interested in what Sarah's got to say, you can check out episode 48 of this podcast when I interviewed her. And once again... If you're feeling like it, you want to click some buttons or something, check out the app you're using. See if you can leave us a review or rate us. Something to help more people find the podcast. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>